0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Fragments of a Soviet-era cruise missile designed for nuclear war have been found in Ukraine. It had no warhead. So why is Russia firing big, expensive blanks?
1: These older missiles are much more visible to radar than their younger offspring. So that also helps with that strategy Mm. because they're much more likely to be picked up and targeted.
0: And new zero-tolerance policy for unacceptable sexual behaviour should mean wrongdoers are sacked from the forces. We'll ask the MP who's
2: led the drive for change, if it's working. The military for decades has marked his own homework and we don't want to see marking their own homework. We want to see very open and transparent investigations.
0: And British civilians
2: who served on Operation Herrick in
0: Afghanistan were entitled to a medal. Is it now time to do the same for Afghan interpreters?
3: That skill and that dedication deserves to be recognised so that these amazing people can stand next to us at cenotaphs across the UK with a medal that they earned just as hard as we did.
0: Plans, they say, rarely survive first contact. And so improvisation has been a key military skill since the dawn of time it might bring to mind thoughts of gaffer tape, perhaps some amateur welding. And if you're cornered without any live ammunition, firing a few blanks might just help get you out. Russia appears to be taking this approach to the max in Ukraine, apparently firing 1980s cruise missiles, which once carried nuclear warheads, but are now simply loaded with ballast. The UK says parts of an AS-15 Kent have been found, apparently shot down in Ukraine. So what exactly is this missile and why is Russia using it unarmed? Justin Crump is a veteran of the Royal Armoured Corps and now CEO of the Risk and Intelligence Consultancy, Sibyline.
1: These are actually an ex-Soviet missile, originally nuclear-armed, brought into service about 1982 and a response to Tomahawk. So it is an older system at this point. It's the ancestor, in fact, of the systems that Russia is more commonly using over Ukraine now. The ones that we've seen launch from their heavy bombers to target Ukrainian infrastructure throughout the conflict.
0: And without any kind of warhead, how much damage would they do where they land?
1: You definitely wouldn't want to be under one still. Um, if you look at uh, the damage to Sheffield in 1982, the ship hit by an that didn't detonate, but just the kinetic energy of the missile and the resulting fire from the fuel was still sufficient to sink the ship. When we look at uh, the way that these are being used, um, the missiles with a, a pretty long range. They're probably only using about half of their fuel. So they still got the ability to do kinetic damage and start fires and you know, have a reasonable fireball, obviously, even without the warhead. However, I'd stress, I don't think that's why Russia is using these. Uh, I think if that's what they were doing, they'd have found ways to get warheads onto them. I think the principal use of these systems is to distract air defense and get the Ukrainians to fire missiles at at these targets rather than the more dangerous warhead arm missiles that are also coming in. And the factor that influences that is the fact these older missiles are much more visible to radar than their younger offspring. So that also helps with that strategy because mm-hmm. they're much more likely to be picked up and targeted.
0: And is it also a case that it's impossible to attach a conventional warhead to them or, or simply that Russia doesn't have the warheads Warheads to do that?
1: I mean, I think nothing's impossible. And we've seen a lot of improvisation, this conflict from consumer drones right up to the way that Russia's using some of its other missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, for example, all the stocks of those in a very secondary ground attack role. But there's been some improvisation to make that more effective. So. I suspect if they if they really wanted to get warheads on these and had to get them into operation just to increase the volume of their campaign, they could have done it. I'd suspect it's not cost effective. And again, it, it points towards them not being used in that way, but very much more steered towards that hypothesis that they are there to help overwhelm and distract Ukrainian air defence so that missiles are wasted.
0: And how effective do you think this distraction could be? It's a
1: fraction of a total, but everything in combat, as we all know, is about incremental gains. Very rarely is something lost because of one piece of equipment, one tactic. It's, it's the advantage it gives you overall in conflict. And so in this case, it means that a few extra missiles might get through. Well, at the moment, if you believe the Ukrainian claims they're shooting out 50 of 70 missiles that are incoming, obviously there's some debate around precisely how effective air defense is. But the Russians know that They're only perhaps uh, on their best days getting one or two missiles out of four onto a target. That's why they're firing four at the target in the first place. You know that some aren't going to make it. And so anything they can do that increases those odds, increases the chance that weapons with warheads will get through. So uh, Maskarovka is a Russian strategic concept of deception. Tactical deception has been a, a very big deal in warfare forever, but the Russians are very aware of its value, particularly in the air domain. In fact, they have drones that replicate helicopters that we saw some evidence of being used at the start of the conflict again to try and distract attention from heliborne operations.
0: Justin Crump, veteran of the Royal Armoured Corps, and with me as always, and battling a heavy cold to do so, is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark? Thanks for making it, Mike. Uh, You told us before how NATO is scanning the skies and seeing everything that moves. When one of these blank missiles is launched, will they know it's an AS-15? Is Russia going to have forewarned the West so we don't mistake it for a nuclear attack?
4: They won't have forewarned the West about this, I'm sure. And the aerial surveillance will probably pick it up, um, whether it's an AS-15 or something else, they may not be sure about. But they'll certainly see it as a pretty heavy cruise missile. And they're launched usually from a Tu-95, that's a bear bomber to NATO, or a a Tu-160, a blackjack bomber. So NATO would see those bombers in the skies and they'll see a cruise missile launched from it. So I think they'll be pretty sure about what it is, even though they won't be 100% certain.
0: And a lot of the analysis of this has been of the tone. It's a sign of desperation from Russia, running short of weapons. Could that be an overinterpretation? It could arguably be seen as Russia making creative use of something with a limited lifespan that costs a lot and will probably never be used for its original intended purpose.
4: Well that's possible I mean this is improvisation and the Russians are doing a lot of that as are the Ukrainians and the West um but Against that, remember that the one thing Putin has been very clear about for the last 20 years is is keeping the nuclear forces up to scratch, keeping them modernised and keeping lots of them. Russia has more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. And the fact that they're improvising from their existing nuclear forces, their operational nuclear forces, is something that they won't have done lightly. Um, That suggests that it may feel like a last resort but the point is that these cruise missiles when they um, when they're seen if it's an AS15 on its on its way then the air defense system of Ukraine has to take that seriously. They can't ignore it. They can't just say, oh, well, it's a decoy, ignore it. They have to take it seriously. And therefore, they must divert some, uh, some efforts to shooting it down and leaving potentially some gaps in the, in the system. But the Russians are trading in their you know, five star nuclear capability in general in order to create that effect.
0: And Mike, improvisation comes in many forms and on both sides. Boeing apparently is looking at launching guided bombs from a common dumb rocket as a way to rapidly manufacture more fire capability for Ukraine. What do you make of that?
4: Yes, I mean, everyone now is thinking about next year and the usage of of, uh, artillery ammunition and missiles will be huge. And so Boeing and Saab, who make it, they're they're talking about this ground-launched small diameter bomb Uh, It's a GBU-39 bomb that already exists and an M26 rocket which already exists and Boeing are saying, look, we can put these together Uh, we can do them quickly they'll cost about 40,000 each which is cheap for a missile and we can have lots of them ready by the spring and it's just like Brimstone 2 we've already delivered Brimstone 2 to the Ukrainians and that's a classic case of a Brimstone missile with a a dual mode seeker warhead which in uh, 2011 in, in Libya turned out to be extremely valuable and it was relatively cheap it was an improvisation of two systems put them together for a particular purpose and it works and we'll see a lot of this over the winter the west is now because it can't gear up sufficiently to meet what we know will be the demand for weapons next year a lot of western companies are now thinking creatively about how can they provide the relevant firepower and accuracy by improvising with what they've got and then offer that to the ukrainians
2: this is sitrep
0: Now, if you're in the armed forces and you behave unacceptably in a sexual way, you can now expect to be sacked. The new zero-tolerance policy for unacceptable sexual behaviour, even if it's not a crime, has just come into effect. The change has been somewhat overshadowed by investigations that were already underway into claims of a toxic culture in the Red Arrows, which is understood to have resulted in at least two sackings. And an ongoing investigation into alleged bullying, sexual harassment and claims of rape within the submarine service. The Conservative MP and Army veteran Sarah Atherton has played a key role in creating a new approach with an inquiry which found the services were failing to protect female personnel. In September, she was appointed as Defence Minister by Liz Truss but held the job for just 37 days before the new PM, Rishi Sunak, replaced her. Well, I've been talking to Sarah Atherton about all of this, starting with the investigations into the Red Arrows and the Marine Service.
2: It makes for very sad and harrowing reading. I really feel for the victims involved in this. And for so long, the victims uh, have been overlooked uh, within the MOD processes. It was always felt that once confidence is built in the system and women and men. Uh, feel that they have more confidence, they can have their voice heard where it won't be dismissed and they will be taken seriously and they will get the support they need that cases will increase And I suspect we will see a lot more of these cases going forward. We need a cultural change in the military. Um, And we're we're really at the stage where we need to lance this boil before we can heal. And I think we're at that stage where we have an old system just transitioning into the new system. But I think my inquiry with the Defence Select Committee has given women the confidence to come forward. And this is what we're seeing right now. But my role is to very much scrutinise and hold the Ministry of Defence to account account to make sure that the new system is in place, will be followed. There is a zero tolerance with a presumption of discharge, regardless of rank and status. And the system going forward is transparent and service personnel, whether they be male or female, will have confidence in that system. Once we see the naming and shaming, which we're seeing now, the military can rebuild and be a modern military ready for the future. And do you have confidence in these investigations that have been launched? I do have confidence uh, because we are seeing some very high profile cases coming forward in the media. Three years ago, we probably wouldn't have seen this. So I do have confidence. But as I say, we are betwixt and between an old and new system. Both the Red Arrows and the submarine Royal Navy Service at the moment are using non-statutory investigation methods. I'm a little bit uneasy about that because one of the points raised in my inquiry was the military for decades has marked its own homework and we don't want to see marking their own homework. We want to see very open and transparent investigations using the new system and that will then build confidence and with confidence will come cultural change. Because your report
0: last year recommended the most serious allegations should be taken away from the services altogether and dealt with by a central defence authority. The MOD rejected that, of course, in favour of investigation systems outside the chain of command for each of the single services. You told us a few weeks ago when you were minister, you were looking at the detail of those single service investigation
2: plans. Are you still sceptical about them? So the good... Thing is, and we should remember, that a very long and old established system has changed. We've removed the chain of command from complaints of a sexual nature. I would like to see that go further to all complaints of harassment, bullying and intimidation. We have central admissibility teams established in each of the services. I would like to have seen that more independent, but it's a stepwise change in the right direction. I remember when I was minister rejigging and signing off the policy and the pathway for people engaging with the central admissibility team but the proof is in the pudding. Mm. Uh, It's probably a little soon uh, yet. uh, And that's what I'll be continuing to do as a backbencher is to look at the experiences of women going through that system uh, and to look at outcomes. The first sea lord has defended the
0: investigation system. He said at the weekend that taking it outside altogether would be slower and potentially lack the understanding of life on board ships and submarines. Does that
2: argument stand up? Uh, I don't think it is. I, I, I think women want justice. And if justice takes a little bit longer, then that's what should happen. I also think non-statutory investigations give scope for scepticism as to whether this is truly transparent. I also think that administrative discharges, which again are quicker, actually doesn't deliver justice. Uh, what people want to see is cases going through court-martial.
0: You say women want justice. Do you then think that they're more unlikely to get justice in this system? Because the First Sea Lord also said that, that in doing it this way,
2: there is a, a more likelihood of a better outcome. I don't think we, he or I can judge that yet until enough women have gone through the system that that can be audited and analysed. Part of my role as a backbencher now, as a member of the Defence Select Committee, will be to look at the cases going through uh, and seeing whether justice is served. How do you feel doing that as a backbencher? Do you think you'll have more clout, more freedom to say what you really think? Yes, that's the privilege of being a backbencher. Yeah, you can hold the ministers to account a lot more and the service chief. So, yeah, I shall relish, I shall relish his potential. We look forward to your inputs. Let's talk about your time as a minister, given a
0: job of fixing things that you have been passionate about fixing, as we've been hearing. In the five or so weeks you were inside the MOD as a minister, do you think that was enough time to achieve anything
2: substantial? Are you happy with your time there? I was lucky enough to become a minister in something that I was truly passionate about and understood. Obviously, the role is much broader than the scope of my inquiry. But what I did manage to achieve in five weeks was to actually hold the ministers and the service chiefs to account. So they are under no illusion uh, where I think we should go and the MOD should go on this. So they will be under no illusion how I will be holding them to account as a backbencher. The MOD says it's demonstrating
0: significant progress for women in the forces. Having sat on both sides of this now, do you think that's
2: fair? Oh, I think that they have made massive strides to change the lived experiences of women in the forces. They've got a voice, they're valued, they are recognised. There are immense changes gone through the system from wraparound childcare, health policies, clothing, body armour, significant changes and attitudinal changes have also been made within the MOD. So well done to the MOD, but we've got a long way to go. And having
0: returned to the Commons Defence Committee, what are the next steps for you in working to improve the experience of women
2: in the armed forces? I intend to seek permission from the Defence Select Committee to hold an annual review so I can hold the MOD to account on their pace of change. I receive one to two cases per week still into my office. Um, Some I refer to salute her for therapeutic support every case I forward to the MOD. This is not an issue that is going to resolve overnight. And when you say you get one to two
0: cases every week, what kind of cases are they? Are they sexual harassment or bullying,
2: or uh, unfortunately, they tend to be the raw end of things, which is usually rape. Uh, one to two sex. a week. One to two a week, and that they're kind of recent cases, are they? Recent No, some of them. No, the, I mean, some of these cases go back decades. Some are recent. Some are families that are seeking support because they also, and we forget this in the equation, they also are struggling with what's happened to their daughters or wives. There's a lot of, a lot of work still to be done, so I shall continue to do it. Sarah Afton, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: Mike Clark, you heard those last figures from Sarah Atherton, new serious claims every week to her office, and she thinks this is a long process of change that will uncover more. How painful is this going to be for the forces?
4: Oh, no question. I mean, the forces, you know, rightly, are a reflection of wider society that they defend, and the wider society at present is very concerned about um, sexual behavior, about gender equality and issues of inclusion, and, and it rightly so. And it isn't just that the the armed forces can't be insulated from any of the things that are going on in wider society, but that also we need armed forces which have a much wider range of expertise than ever before. And so we certainly don't want to exclude 50% of the population from the pool of expertise because women don't want to be part of the armed forces because they don't like the atmosphere of it. And so it's a matter of self-preservation that the armed forces competing with civilian society have got to provide a valuable, reliable social environment in which people want to work the Armed Forces can't avoid this they can't say well we're special and um, they simply have to do it the way every other organization in the country has to do it but the Armed Forces are as it were more liable to publicity they're on a pedestal and that's going to be very uncomfortable for them.
0: Yeah Mike and significant change always poses risks for organizations change management is practically a science in its own right how concerned are you about unintended damage to the forces in this process?
4: Well, they have to manage it. That's the point. The thing about the armed forces is that they rely partly for their performance on loyalty and a certain tribalism. And there are other organizations that are like that. Journalism is like that. The city, the police, the fire services are like that. But the armed forces do have a, as it were, a special social life which will be impacted by this, but they've got to work their way through it. And they can only do that by appealing to a a higher level of professionalism. If you really wanna be the best in the world, as you keep telling yourselves you are, then you have to be extremely professional at dealing with this, not just dealing with the battlefield or the technology, you've got to deal with your workforce, male and female, with that extra level of professionalism so that you are the best in the world at doing that as well. That's the challenge.
0: Mike, stay with us. During the UK's 20 year military presence in Afghanistan, more than two and a half thousand interpreters worked alongside British servicemen and women. Now, we've spoken many times over many years of the campaigns, battles and efforts to bring those interpreters to safety in the UK. And for context, the latest figures from the government say around 70% of those eligible under the so-called Arab scheme, along with their families, have now arrived in the UK. They estimate around 4,600 more people are eligible, most of them still in Afghanistan. But today we're going to look at a new campaign on behalf of these interpreters, many of whom served on the front line amid gun battles, rocket attacks and improvised bomb explosions a group of British veterans is now calling for them to be awarded medals in line not only with military personnel, but also UK civilians who worked on Operation Herrick. And it's not just about making a nice gesture. I've been talking about the idea with Major James Bolter, a reservist in the Royal Logistic Corps who helped train and recruit interpreters in Helmand, and Hashmat Nawabi, who interpreted for Major Bolter.
5: As my boss described, that the interpreters were eyes and ears on the ground for the uh, forces. So we did a lot, the best we could. Our job was more than risky uh, than uh, the soldiers, because when we're going back home on holiday, on leave, uh, we don't know who going to face. And that's why a lot of my colleagues, including myself, started getting uh, dead trade, and we did everything we could to, to manage to until we came here.
0: And you've been in the UK now for just over a year, is that right? I mean, to get here was quite a feat, wasn't it? How are you finding it?
5: Well, uh, I find very difficult and strange because uh, you're losing everything. When you come to the UK, you're facing a completely new life. And even I get on the plane, and there was a lot of t- thinking in my head that something's going to happen in a minute, uh, in a day. So... It was a very strange feeling.
0: Major James Bolter, why do you think it's important to award medals to Afghan interpreters? Just give us a sense of how important Hashmat's help was for you, for example.
3: Yeah, sure, Kate. So at the time when Hash and I were working together, there were 1,056 personnel, local Afghans, very brave individuals um, who were for- force multipliers. Without them, we could not do our job patrols out on the ground they needed that interpretation most importantly to the local civilian population because they were the people that would be able to give the hints if there was a threat wouldn't it take long you know maybe a couple of months and our interpreters would their ground sign skills would be amazing to see where IEDs were that skill and that dedication deserves to be recognized so that these amazing people can stand next to us on, at half across the UK with a medal that they earned just as hard as we did uh, mm. and remember their friends, their family, both British, Danish, Estonian and Afghan on the 11th of November each year.
0: And Hashmat, you talked a bit about how you could hardly believe you were actually going to make it to the UK and not until you were like sitting on the plane, you were thinking things were going to go wrong the whole time. Um, you had this long battle, you presumably had to prove your identity and re- record of service with the UK. How, how hard was it all?
5: It was very hard. It wasn't easy. Despite that, everything was exist in the system. So again, you have to prove everything. Uh, they asking you. Uh, it is uh, quite annoying. But uh, I'm grateful for um, from all my bosses, and they helped me through all the process. We still have a number of interpreters, obviously, left in Afghanistan, struggling for their process. And uh, I'm taking this chance of say, requesting all my. Uh, bosses and military personnel to please help them as well, because everybody did their parts.
0: And James, you talk about the recognition that a medal would bring. Another argument is that it would help unlock access to support. Why do we need a medal for that, though?
3: It's purely because once you've been awarded a medal, then you're recognised formally as a veteran. Um, and then that allows you to unlock all sorts of uh nhs access um charity access it, it's it's important you know one to recognize their service for them to give them that extra level of pride but also they become formal veterans then and, and they get the the benefits within uh, the public services which they des- you know, deserve just as much as those of us who've served you know with a weapon in our
5: hands
0: uh, hashtag. what's your experience been like in getting the kind of support that you need for your family to start a new life from scratch
5: well, uh, I'm grateful for the, all the uh, help uh, been given me by the Home Office, by the council, by the Minister of Defence. I'm receiving all the help I need to get on to look for a job and everything else.
0: And what about other interpreters who've come to the UK? Are, are you in touch with them? And do you know much about how they're getting on?
5: Yes, uh, I'm uh, in touch with mostly of them and uh, they're still uh, new, uh, struggling to sit, uh, to settle uh, but uh, we have a large number of community in uh, Glasgow, uh, in Manchester. So whoever's come new, uh we're advising them if they need any kind of information or finding the hospital, or searching for a job or for a school and languages or universities. We provide all the experience. we getting to the, those people who are coming to new. Year. It's a big help, I think.
0: And James, there will be people listening who think a medal's a really nice idea, but the focus has surely got to stay on the 4,600 people who still need to be brought to safety in the UK.
3: Yeah, and I'm very sympathetic to that view, and they're not wrong. However, we have to bear in mind that the remaining 4,600, there may be security issues, there may have been disciplinary issues in their personnel files, and a lot of that 4,600 will be family members. The ARAP team in, in the MOD you know, is working very hard. They're a very small team, but very, very, very dedicated. And the last thing we need to realise is that we can't actually get people out of Pakistan in Islamabad, which is like the holding centre, until we've got that wraparound care for the family. So housing, the money, the health and everything else. Only when that's in place are our able to hit the print button on the, on the ticket for the RAF aircraft mm. to bring them home, so
5: it's not easy.
0: And Hashmat, were you to be awarded a medal, what would it mean to you?
5: Well, uh, I'll be honoured, it will be a privilege honoured to receive a medal Granting a model is, a, a, we are deserve it, and it's the right things to do. And it's also sending a wider picture to the UK nation. The, 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 these people have played a very important role. And I think the military personnel, uh, military families, they know that we, they, we put our life lo- ahead of them. We, we sacrifice everything for them. Granted, it will be uh, hon- honor our service and it will be proud of our family. So.
0: You're nodding, James.
3: Yeah, totally. It's, um, you know, it was a very proud moment when I got my Afghan medal. My family are extremely proud and and all of us who've, you know, seen service um, overseas who get that medal, you know, it it means so much to you. And for that to be granted to our Afghan colleagues and their families, that's the, the cherry on the cake. And I think it's the least we can do. And I look forward to being at the medal parade for Hashmat and hopefully putting it on his chest.
0: Major James Bolter, Hashmat Nawabi, great to speak to you. Thanks so much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me. Pleasure.
0: Michael Clark, who ultimately decides whether a medal is awarded? Who do James and Hash might have to convince? And is there any precedent for awarding medals to locally employed civilians who worked alongside UK armed forces?
4: Medals are, it's quite a grey area when you start to look at it because lots of civilians have been given medals for working with the military for gallantry or some particular act. But campaign medals can only be uh, awarded by the head of state, which of course now is the king. And so if we're talking about a campaign medal that is available to civilians, that would be a bit of a precedent. It's not impossible to get that on the road, as it were. One would need support from a number of MPs, I would think from ministers of defence, individual ministers. And of course, it doesn't harm to have a member of the royal family on your side as well.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.